Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm the host of today's special edition episode, Nurse Practitioner and Director of Education, Eve Roberts. And this is MP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to MP Pulse, AMP's official podcast, bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to MPs and our patients. The hepatitis A virus is one of several viruses that can cause inflammation of the liver. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported an 850% increase in hepatitis A virus infections from 2014 to 2018. Today, we have two expert guests here to talk about hepatitis A prevention. I'm excited to bring you nurse practitioners, Dr. Audrey Stevenson and Dr. Amanda Cheney. Hello there. My name is Dr. Audrey Stevenson. For the past 42 years, I've been a nurse practitioner working in a variety of clinical and public health settings, but I have a particular interest in vaccines and in vaccine-preventable diseases. I'm happy today to be joined by Dr. Amanda Cheney. Amanda, go ahead and introduce yourself. Thanks, Audrey. I'm Amanda Cheney. I am a nurse practitioner at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida and I've been practicing in liver transplant and hepatology for the past 16 years. So let's start off today by talking about epidemiology, the burden of disease, and the impact on quality of of living with hepatitis A. So Amanda, why don't you start us off by describing what is hepatitis A? Yeah, thanks, Audrey. So hepatitis A is a virus, and it, it causes inflammation of the liver. The symptoms really can range from mild illness to severe illness, but those patients who have severe illness, it truly is quite severe, and there is a really high mortality rate associated with that specific, um, those specific people. There's an incubation time of around 28 days. It can range any time from 15 to 50 days. So um, patients may be asymptomatic, they may not have any symptoms and not know that they're transmitting it to somebody else. So that's really important for us to be aware of. From 2016 to 2021, so just until last year, there's been over 37,000 outbreak cases of hepatitis A across 35 states. So there does seem to be an increase in the amount of hepatitis A that is has been going around. Um, there are some several symptoms. As I mentioned, some patients have mild symptoms, so just nausea, vomiting. We treat the symptoms and they're fine. But some patients can have really more severe symptoms and it can range um, to have a fever, malaise, muscle weakness, um, loss of appetite, diarrhea, pretty severe diarrhea, abdominal discomfort, dark colored urine, and jaundice. And jaundice occurs in greater than 70% of patients infected over the age of six years of age. We diagnose hepatitis A with serologic testing, um, and it is um, confirmed by that, but a lot of us um, who are providers, our ears kind of perk up when we hear a patient tell us that they've traveled to an endemic area um, with hepatitis A, and they've had recent travel, and um, they didn't drink bottled water, then we kind of perk up to think, oh, this might be hepatitis A. Case. So, um, so some of us have been kind of tuned into that sort of um, story. 
The treatment really is supportive care only. Um, there, in the, those cases of severe illness, the patients should be transferred to a transplant center to see if they need a liver transplant. Again, it's rare, but it can happen, and so it's really important for us to be aware of that. The impact on health and quality of life. Um, most patients recover and have a lifelong immunity. In 2017, there were 1,500 outbreak cases that led to about 1,000 hospitalizations, so about 71% and 41 deaths. Um, really interesting statistic there. Um, there's a small portion of patients, again, that develop fulminant hepatitis, fulminant liver failure, and that is associated with a high mortality rate of about 80%. So Audrey, I know you've had some experiences with outbreaks of hepatitis A in your community. Um, what, what Can you tell us more about that? What happened there? Well, it was really interesting to see the outbreak that we experienced within our community. And we found that uh, this has been happening across the country. And it's actually, what was surprising about it was the fact that we assumed because the vaccine's been available since the mid-1990s, that virtually all children had been vaccinated. So when we started seeing these outbreaks of young adults with hepatitis A, we couldn't understand. Well, what we've learned is that it was also being spread in uh, populations that we previously didn't understand were at risk. And so uh, we know that individuals that had certain risk factors were more susceptible uh, to contracting this disease. The individuals that are at risk are those that um, are coming in contact with uh, ingestion of, of contaminated food or water. We remember that this is a fecal oral route of infection. Um, individuals are contagious for up to two weeks before symptoms appear. And so they may be working in situations where they have uh, contact with food or other um, fomites that can put others at risk uh, even before they know that they're infected. Uh, some of the risk factors include things like poor sanitation or lack of safe water. Um, individuals who are living with an infected person are at risk. The sexual partner of an infected person is at risk. Individuals that um, are involved in recreational drug use, men who have sex with men, or individuals who are traveling to highly endemic areas with low vaccination rates. Now, CDC has told us that only 40% of reported cases have a risk factor that's identified. So this means that we have 60% of the population that have an unknown source. So it's really important that we prevent this disease and not just in special populations. We now would like to introduce a special guest on today's podcast who's had personal experience with having had hepatitis A. I want to welcome Angela. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to share my story with you. Um, a little over two years ago, right before COVID hit, I was out to eat with a group of friends, uh, having dinner, some drinks. We are all relatively healthy adults in our 30s and 40s. Um, I had never even heard of hepatitis A before any of this happened. Um, about one or two weeks later, a friend of ours that was that was at that gathering started getting really sick and ended up in the hospital. And after um, some blood work, it was determined he had hepatitis A. Uh, shortly after, maybe about a few days to a week later, I started showing symptoms as well. It started with body aches. Um, I initially thought maybe I just slept weird. I didn't know why, why I was so achy. But then I started uh, being really nauseous, uh, vomiting, fever. 
loss of appetite. And I am Italian. I love to eat. So when I'm not hungry, there's definitely a problem there. Um, and the real big clincher was um, I turned yellow. <laughs> I, I had jaundice. Uh, my, my urine was dark. My, the whites of my eyes were yellow. So because my friend uh, a week or so earlier was diagnosed with hepatitis A, I went right to my doctor and asked uh, to be tested for that as well. And my practitioner was actually uh, reluctant to test me for that since I hadn't been out of the country. Um, I'm not considered a high risk person. Um, so she actually sent me to the hospital to get a scan of my gallbladder, thinking maybe I needed my gallbladder removed or a bile duct issue or something like that. But they did a full blood panel just in case. And it did turn out I had hepatitis A. Um, I was in the hospital for about a day, but altogether I was sick for about two weeks and it was just miserable. Um, and as bad as that was, the worst part was that um, altogether five of us got sick to varying degrees, just as you mentioned that um, it can be mild to severe. And unfortunately, the most severe case was actually my partner. Um, my boyfriend uh, actually went into liver failure and was hours away from getting a liver transplant. Uh, you know, miraculously, his number started turning the corner overnight before the surgery was scheduled. So, you know, I, I'm very thankful for that. But he was still in the ICU for 14 days. Um, about a couple weeks later, he was back in the ICU for about two weeks. Um, so, and he was sick altogether for about six months. It, it, it really, it changed both of our lives um, being so sick like this. So that's why I find it really important to have these kinds of conversations, not only to let patients know, but also practitioners, um, uh, because so many of my friends who heard our story and went to talk to their doctors about it, the doctors were hesitant to, to have them even tested or even get the vaccine at all. Um, and I just, I don't want anybody else to go through what we went through and we're, we're still feeling the effects of it. Um, he's better. He's be he went back to work about six months later, but he still will get flare-ups from time to time. And um, my friend, the first one that got sick, he still cannot drink any alcohol. So I'm so glad that you brought me here to, to uh, have a platform to talk about this. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Angela. Your story is amazing. And um, I'm so glad that you and your boyfriend got better. Thank you. <laughs> and yeah. he did without needing a transplant. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. he was literally um, on the, the brink of it. They called me at midnight to authorize the surgery in the morning. But in the morning, like an hour before the surgery, they were like, well, his numbers turned around. So, <laughs> But he was wow. still on the transplant list for like six months just in case. Wow, that is that is amazing. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, because vaccines really are the best way to prevent this disease. Um, so we, we're going to talk a little bit more about some strategies to prevent hepatitis A infection. And we know that proper hygiene, um, so avoiding contamination altogether would be, you know, first and foremost. But um, we, we do recommend for patients who are traveling to endemic areas with hepatitis that they, um, that they do go ahead and get hepatitis A and B vaccinations prior to travel so that they are covered for that. Um, and then avoid those, those um, 
even the possibility of unclean food or water. So bringing bottled water is always kind of a rule of thumb that that we do recommend. And again, those I can't just emphasize the vaccinations more, you know, that that we should just do it. Um, Audrey, I know like this, um, the story that, that we've heard today, um, your community experienced a significant outbreak. Can you share some experiences that um, about vaccination and, and how you encourage people just to, to go ahead and get vaccinated? You know, that's a really great question. And what we learned is that because we were seeing the outbreak in individuals that hadn't previously been identified as being at risk, we needed to determine the best way to reduce barriers for individuals to be vaccinated. So many of the individuals in the outbreak were homeless. And so we needed to find strategies for being able to get vaccine to homeless individuals. We went to the homeless shelters. We went to uh, bars. We actually went down to the homeless encampments with backpacks to provide the vaccines in those homeless encampments. We went to the needle exchange um, activities to be able to try to provide vaccine to individuals. In some cases, we had individuals who were food handlers, and so we needed to go into places of employment. We needed to reduce the barrier of the hours of operation so that individuals could be vaccinated and be protected, because in many cases, they didn't have time to take off of work or they didn't have transportation to go into a regular clinic to be able to receive those vaccines. So the primary strategy was to be able to reduce barriers and to be able to get this vaccine out into the public. But it also included the importance of, of providing education for that. So as, as you mentioned, um, Amanda, the best prevention against the hepatitis A continues to be um, vaccination against hepatitis A. And we found that after the vaccine was approved in the mid-1990s, that the cases dropped 95.5%. And when we look specifically at vaccination rates, CDC has found that only 15.7% only of individuals between the ages of 14 and 49 have been vaccinated, which was really surprising to me since this vaccine has been available for over two decades. And when we look at our older adults over the age of 50, we see that only 6.1% of people have been vaccinated. Now, we do know that chronic liver conditions um, really is a um, population that needs to be protected because you don't want to add that injury to an already diseased liver. But only 20% of those people with chronic liver conditions have been vaccinated. We have two different types of of hepatitis A vaccines available. We have monovalent and we have um, combination vaccines. So these uh, vaccines are very highly immunogenetic. So we see that 95% of adults uh, that are vaccinated develop antibodies within four weeks of that first dose. So it's a highly effective vaccine. And children and adolescents show seropositivity um, within four weeks of the first dose, and that's 97% of those children and adolescents. So there's the monovalent vaccine, there's two types, and they've both been available since the mid-1990s. And the vaccination with this monovalent vaccine really has similar types of adverse events as we see with other vaccines. So it's some injection sites uh, tenderness, a little bit of low-grade fever, 
maybe a little bit of swelling and potentially some rash. But we also have a um, combination vaccine that protects against both hepatitis A and hepatitis B. And this has been available since the early 2000s. And the side effects to this, again, are very similar to those of the monovalent vaccine and include, again, the low-grade fever, but have maybe a little bit of headache, some injection site uh, pain or redness, and maybe some uh, dizziness. We need to make sure that all patients of all ages are vaccinated against hepatitis A. I think that Angela's story is a, a stark reminder that we as clinicians need to be both looking for symptoms of hepatitis A, but also incorporating preventive measures. All children between the ages of 12 and 23 months and all children and adolescents between the ages of two and 18 who have not previously been vaccinated with hepatitis A vaccine should re receive the two-dose series. And those individuals that are over the age of 19 with certain risk factors should also be vaccinated. Um, we also need to consider that the vaccine is not available for individuals under the age of six months so and is contraindicated. So in those circumstances, we need to make sure that we're using um, immunoglobulin in those individuals. It can be a little bit challenging for individuals when you have some that have started the series with maybe a monovalent and then are switching to the um, combination vaccine. So, but be aware that there are dosing guidelines for both types of vaccines. Now, vaccination of groups at increased risk, we, we follow the CDC and the ACIP recommendations. Those recommendations include individuals over the age of six months that are traveling to or individuals working in countries with higher intermediate um, HIV infection uh, should be vaccinated. So we want uh, to provide a single dose of the hepatitis A vaccine uh, between the ages of six and 11 months. But remember that does not count towards that routine two dose series. Those individuals between 12 months and 40 years of age who are partially vaccinated should receive a single dose of, of hepatitis A vaccine. And then those over the age of 40 that are immunocompromised or have chronic liver disease, they really need to have a dose of the hepatitis A vaccine when the travel is considered. And if they're traveling in less than two weeks, we need to make sure that they receive that hepatitis A vaccine and also administer Ig in a separate limb. The other uh, groups that we need to be considering are those international adoptees or those that anticipate having close contact with international adoptees. So for those adoptees, consider testing for anti-HIV, um, IgG, and IgM to guide your decision-making. And then contacts should receive the two-dose series just as soon as the adoption is planned. Now, homeless and those with chronic disease or HIV, we follow the routine vaccination schedule. And then also we need to consider those with STIs and those with um, illegal drug use as being at a... Uh, particular risk. So Amanda, tell us a little bit about uh, post-exposure prophylaxis and what you recommend. Yeah, thanks, Audrey. So, you know, first of all, going back to Angela's story, I'm just really surprised that vaccination and the, the immunoglobulin wasn't really discussed with her and kind of does my heart a little, makes me a little sad that, you know, <laughs> that we didn't like do that for her. But um, so needless to say that 
you know, is something that is a best practice and something that we should be doing. So um, if the patient has not been vaccinated, has not been vaccinated for hepatitis A or B, then they should be. Um, and um, really, you know, within two weeks of exposure, that's totally fine to go ahead and give them that. I have so many patients living, you know, working in the liver world who people are concerned with giving um, a patient with liver disease a hepatitis A or B vaccination because they, they think that, oh, it's liver related, so that's a, that's a problem. But no, we, we should do that. And, and our practice guidelines support that and, and say that we should go ahead and vaccinate because we don't want to add more insult to injury. You don't want to put a bruise on something that's already bruised. You, you don't want to injure something more that's already injured. So, you know, having someone who would to develop hepatitis, viral hepatitis A, B or C on top of already a liver disease, that would be devastating, you know, for, for the liver and for that disease. So all that being said, definitely, even if a patient is exposed or has an active infection, we would want to go ahead and vaccinate and or give the immunoglobulin to help them um, with recovery of that disease. And there are, you know, especially in our day and age and with everything going on with COVID, there is some hesitancy with receiving vaccines. Um, you know, there could be for many reasons, for religious, spiritual reasons, it could be just plain, you know, afraid of needles and being stuck or concerns over missing work. Um, Angela, what do you think about that? Have you um, had any um, any concerns or, or has there been any uh, vaccine hesitancy um, that you've been aware of? Um, there was not a lot of vaccine hesitancy at the time that when all this happened, it was right a couple months before COVID hit. So it wasn't the same climate, let's say, as far as people, um, you know, having these, the same hesitancy that they might have about the COVID vaccine today. Um, so I, I pretty much told everyone I could come across. I told people at the gas station. <laughs> I told people in my exercise class. I told everyone. Um, and most people received that information, at least with like, oh, okay. Um, I was able to convince um, at least a half dozen friends to go get that vaccine. Um, the biggest source of hesitancy, just to reiterate, was from practitioners um, who didn't feel that the vaccine was necessary if, if they're not, you know, traveling to um, other countries. Um, and pretty much a lot of my friends just had to go right to a pharmacy to get the, the, in the vaccine over the counter. So, so yeah, that's, um, and I think uh, the, my friends that didn't go get the vaccine, despite me standing on my soapbox every day on social media about it, <laughs> I think it was just generally, they didn't feel that it was necessary. You know, they didn't, it's one of those uh, until it happens to you kind of mm -hmm. things. Um, but yeah, the big source of hesitancy was from practitioners. Yeah, and that maybe we just, you know, should be talking about it more, which is really, you know, a good thing that we're doing this podcast so that we can get some more education out there to know that number one, it's okay to give, you're not gonna, you're not gonna hurt anything. And number two, it's gonna help their disease and help their body fight, fight that disease to get better. So um, I'm right. just, I'm so glad that you were, um, had a great immune response um, enough to, to get better on your own. Um, so that's awesome. Yeah. So um, what, um, Audrey, what do you think about more strategies that may be helpful to encourage practices to encourage vaccination for hepatitis A? Well, I think as, as both you and Angela have mentioned, patient education is going to be foremost. And 
as was also mentioned, a lot of individuals don't understand that they are at risk. And many adults enter adulthood thinking that they've actually received all of the vaccines that they need for their lifetime, because there's so many vaccines that are part of the childhood immunization schedule. And so we need to use every encounter with our patients as an opportunity to review their vaccination record and to ensure that we're protecting them against all of these vaccine preventable diseases. And especially right now with outbreaks of hepatitis A being uh, pretty much in, in 35 of the 50 states, we need to make sure that we're protecting individuals um, in case they're coming in contact or, you know, with travel now opening back up and, in, and individuals that are considering international travel or even travel to areas where we're seeing outbreaks, we need to make sure that everyone is, is protected. So increasing that patient education. And again, it hasn't been on everyone's radar um, the last two years because we've been really focused on COVID and all of the misinformation and um, a lot of the hesitancy that surrounds the COVID vaccine has now had a ripple effect with other vaccines. So there's going to be the challenge of the practitioner to really have those conversations. We need to improve the convenience and access to the vaccines. And as I mentioned before, we actually went to workplaces and to where people live to be able to provide the vaccine because individuals have barriers. It can be a time barrier. It can be the inability to travel somewhere. It may be the hours of operation that we have in our clinics. All of these can, can set up a barrier. And in many cases, if an individual doesn't have that convenience or if we don't offer the vaccine when the person is with us in our clinic, they're not going to follow up and go to a pharmacy or somewhere else. So we need to make sure that every visit is an opportunity for us to be able to protect individuals. Using reminders and follow-ups. So if an individual for whatever reason, uh, was advised to get the vaccine or needs another vaccine within the series, we need to make sure that we remind that person that to be fully vaccinated, they, re they need to receive the full series. So these are some of the things that we've been doing in our clinical um, setting. Amanda, have you been doing anything differently as far as vaccine hesitancy? Yeah, so I mean, as a part of the transplant process for, for all of our patients, it's a part of the, the routine. You know, they, they come in for their transplant evaluation. We test the serologies to see if they have been immunized. A lot of them have not been, um, which is, you know, again, really surprising. Like we talked about earlier that you think that all of these childhood vaccinations were done, um, but then, you know, you test an adult generation and it seems like, you know, they don't have any antibodies to these things. So, um, so if they aren't immunized, if they don't have antibodies, then we do go ahead and vaccinate them prior to transplant. And then we, again, tape a very close eye on that, obviously in the post-transplant setting. Um, but I, I think it, again, is really important to make sure just as a part of our primary care um, visits, as you mentioned, that we should ask, you know, have you ever been immunized against um, hepatitis A and B. And if they haven't, um, or they they may, oh, well, that's a liver thing. I don't have a liver problem. Well, let's let's talk about that a little bit. And we can just educate them more about it and let them know, hey, it's a very simple. It's very, um, very benign, it, you know, minimal side effects, if any. And let's just go ahead and, and get you immunized like, like your flu shot. Um, so I, I think it's, it's simple to do. It's quick and easy. 
Um, there are, you know, as you mentioned, multiple um, doses of the vaccination, but I love what you did, Audrey, to be able to go to, you know, where people are and just, you know, make it readily available for them where they, you know, they can't say no. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I think, you know, doing something like that would, would be amazing in our communities. One other strategy we've used is, uh, I guess, a, a strategy of upselling. So if we have an individual that's coming in with their child to have their child vaccinated, we will ask the adult, well, you know, we're giving your child these vaccines today. Um, what about you? Are you missing your influenza vaccine? Are you missing your hepatitis A vaccine? You know, and so we reviewed the adults um, or the other siblings at the same time that we're there for the other individuals. So I think anytime we have an opportunity to have that education with families, not just the client that we're seeing or the patient that we're seeing, but also the other family members or other individuals that are with them. Because in many cases, um, again, that the adult doesn't realize that they may be missing vaccines. My experience has been when I ask individuals if they're up to date on their vaccines, they will always say, yes, I'm up to date on all my vaccines. But then when I specifically scroll down and ask them, about their influenza, about their hepatitis A, about their hepatitis B, I find out that they're missing a number of their vaccines if I don't have the record available to me. I think this has been a really robust discussion and I've really appreciated the comments of both Angela and Amanda and their perspectives with regard to uh, hepatitis A uh, prevention. And I think that again, our take home note is that as nurse practitioners and as clinicians, we have a real responsibility to make sure that we're providing the education to individuals about how to protect themselves um, against hepatitis A, and in particular to ensure that they're being adequately vaccinated. Because again, prevention, uh, vaccination is the best preventive measure that we have for protecting against hepatitis A vaccine. Amanda, any final thoughts? No, I just want to thank Angela for her sharing her story and um, just uh, giving us another chance <laughs> to, uh, to make sure that we get it right this time around and, and share more education about this. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. And, and this is great. This is exactly why I want to do these types of uh, interviews for that exact reason. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Amanda and Audrey, for sharing your wealth of knowledge on this extremely important topic. And thank you, Angela, for sharing your personal experiences and insights. It's been a great segment. Your dedication and passion really came through. To our listeners, I hope you found this episode educational and can apply some of what was discussed to your practice. Join your National Professional Association and add your voice to over 120,000 of your NP colleagues nationwide. I urge you to become an AAMP member today. Membership gives you access to so many benefits, including tools and resources for your practice and the AAMP CE Center with hundreds of free CE. Audrey and Amanda have developed a patient tool with AAMP to help providers educate patients about hepatitis A. There's a link in the show notes to the tool where you can access it and download it. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new episodes. Mm -hmm.